Hi, I'm Emily Claver. My leadership quote is from Nelson Mandela. It's may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. The Leader Assistant Podcast exists to encourage and challenge assistants to become confident, game-changing leader assistants. Hey friends, thanks for tuning in. Check out the show notes at leaderassistant.com slash 121, as this is episode 121 of the Leader Assistant podcast. It's your host, Jeremy Burrows, and I just wanted to encourage you to check out our membership at leaderassistant.com slash membership for ongoing training, support, and community. All right, I hope you enjoy this interview. Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Leader Assistant Podcast. It's your host, Jeremy Burrows, and today I'm speaking with Emily Claver. Emily is the personal and executive assistant to Brooke Castillo at the Life Coach School. Emily, how's it going? I'm great, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. What part of the world are you in? I'm in the D.C. area right now, outside Washington, D.C. in Maryland. Great. And you are from Kansas City, though. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm originally from Kansas City and lived in 10 states most of my time in KC. Awesome. Well, I'm very excited because I'm 99.9% sure you are my first podcast guest who is also from Kansas City, which is my hometown. So welcome. Thank you, hometown boy. Yes, Casey, represent. All right, well, let's jump in, and why don't you tell us about the beginning of your career, and we'll just kind of work our way back to the present day. Sure. Well, I'm 52 this year, and I've been doing executive assistant work since I was 18. So starting back in the late 80s, 1980s. I started in commercial real estate as a nighttime receptionist, making $750 an hour, working part-time for a vice president in real estate. And then it's just kind of gone from there. Um, Probably the first half of my career, I worked in real estate, all different kinds of real estate. Then I went into um, telecom. I worked for Sprint when it was a big giant telecom organization. And then it became Sprint PCS and I helped launch the first wireless network for Sprint. And then I, uh, let's see, and I went to the Chiefs for eight years. I worked um, leading the football operations with the CEO and general manager and the for eight years at the Chiefs, which was phenomenal experience for me. And then I um, went into advertising for four years, working with two C-level guys who run a mid-level agency in Kansas City. And then most recently, I'm on my third year now, starting my third year with Brooke, helping her run her life and the Life Coach School. Amazing. Thanks for sharing. So what is the Life Coach School? Sure. So Brooke is an entrepreneur, female entrepreneur, who was a life coach herself, a weight loss coach, 
when she started her business about 14 years ago. And she was very successful as a solopreneur. She got to about the $300,000 a year level, but had a full schedule and didn't know how to grow her business beyond that to continue to serve more clients and make more money. And so she and her husband at the time formed the Life Coach School, and they use all of Brooke's tools that she designed um, and practiced using. So it's basically now today, it's become a completely online live training that's a certification that classes of people go through to use all of Brooke's tools and be trained at the highest level in, you know, the skills that it takes to be a successful coach, life coach. So that's half of our business today is the certification program. The other half of our business is called self-coaching scholars, which is like a program, a self-help encyclopedia, university online, live courses, live coaches. Uh, It's a monthly subscription-based program that um, we have over, we have about almost 4,000 people in that today. And we, um, our revenue for this year, we're on target for 50 million. So uh, it's been quite a growth trajectory, which is amazing. So she has one of the highest rated self-help podcasts in iTunes. It's called The Life Coach School. And that is how I originally found her was on my commute to downtown Kansas City every day when I worked at the ad agency. I found that for my 45 minute drive each way. And I fell in love with her frank, direct, no nonsense way and the simplicity with which she teaches like real truths, you know, real truths about how life works. So how did you go from listening to her podcast to now being her personal and executive assistant? That path. Yeah, that's, it's an amazing story. So I listened and decided then you know, I went, then I started consuming like the back podcasts and then I, At at the time, I was in the middle of working on trying to convince my two bosses that I should be making more than $70,000 a year for what I did for them. And so much of my time was spent making case studies. And I was like obsessed with I was going to teach these people um, how I had contributed to their growth. And I didn't understand why my position would be capped at a number that made no sense to me logically. So part of what, um, you know, part of what Brooke teaches is about how you get to decide what you're worth and you go for what you're, you know, what you're worth and you don't let other people outside of you decide what you're worth. So that kind of thinking was very appealing to me at the time. Ultimately I decided whatever Brooke invited me to go do I was going to go attend. 
So she did a live in-person event in California, Northern California. And I convinced my husband at the time that I should spend that money to go to that because I was also interested in maybe I would become a certified coach. Like maybe that's why I'm so attracted to her stuff. Maybe that's what I'm really supposed to go do instead of keep taking care of these um, of the people I was working for. So I went to her live in-person event. I introduced myself. I told her um, I was going to be a million dollar coach someday. You know, my confidence is really crazy. Um, So she didn't remember me at all from any of that. But I did go study her operations at the event. It was fascinating to me that someone with her um, presence would have such a poorly run event. It kind of surprised me. And I felt compelled, you know, it was like, whatever she offered, I was going to go do. So I ended up cashing out my 401k from Sprint to pay for certification, still believing at the time that I just was going to launch my own coaching practice, right, which I did. So at the time I became certified, my father-in-law passed away. And my husband at the time um, offered graciously that his inheritance from the sale of that home could help support our life while I launched my business. So I became a, you know, my own solopreneur thing. I quit supporting the C-level guys and I worked from home for 10 months pre-COVID Um, trying to build a coaching practice, supporting executives and executive assistants. And so in the doing of that, so I became certified that it was way more rigorous than I expected. It was hard. And um, I was very proud to come out of that certified. But I did not really have my niche and my messaging figured out yet. I didn't know really what I wanted to teach, who I wanted to talk to. But I did put that I was an executive assistance coach on everything that I put out. And some point in time, Brooke saw that. And then about 10 months into me having my own business, she reached out to me and said, hey, I need an amazing executive assistant do you know of any, or do you know one, or do you know of anyone? Can, no, no, no. She said, can you help me? I need an amazing executive assistant. Can you help me? And I thought, what on the earth does that mean, right? <laughs> she was like a rock star to me at that point, right? Like I had had no interaction with her, really. So I, I slept on that, and... um I emailed her back and said, of course, I can help you. Do you have a job description? Still not knowing if she meant me or do I know someone? So she sent the job description and she sent the pay, her her budget for the position over. And I about fell out of my chair because it was close to three times what I was making. And so, well, actually, at that point in time, I was making $10,000 a year as a coach. So it was $200. It was a lot more than what I was making. And uh, and I had become really disheartened with 
like the realization that I didn't know who I was for marketing. Like I didn't know how to market myself as a coach. So, um, so I jumped at the opportunity. I sent her, you know, I slept on it through the weekend, um, prayed about it, which is important to me. And then I, cause I knew going all in with her would be a, quite the experience. Like she's a force it was going to be an all consuming endeavor. And I had been enjoying living at home for 10 months, you know, putzing. So anyway, so that's how it happened. I emailed her back and I said, uh, I'm your girl. Yeah. You know, yeah, I know who you need. It's me because the job description spoke exactly to what my strengths were. So it wasn't like it was even a leap. It was like, it was written for me. So that's how it happened. Um, she did a three month trial. So I, I was on trial for three months, not making what the position budgeted, but ultimately it paid off. Um, at the end of my trial, she offered me more than what she had budgeted, which was a nice surprise. And, um, she continues to reward, um, my work financially, which is such a blessing and blows my mind. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about pay for assistance. I know it comes up almost every day, someone asking about what the range is for an area where they're interviewing for a role or the age-old debate of recruiters asking, what is your range for salary? What do you want to get paid? And the applicant asking the recruiter or the HR department, well, what's the range for the role? So what would you say and how would you encourage people who are wrestling with this, um, again, age-old issue of salary for assistance and how to navigate that world? Yeah, it's unfortunately or fortunately, right? Like fortunately, it's panned out fortunate for me that we have a profession that you could make you know, 35 grand a year, or you can make 300 grand a year. So what I did was I did my own resume review. I did my own audit of myself and my career and what I made. And I kind of mapped it out. And I tried to look at it objectively. So you know, I kind of went through a process of honestly trying to assess what my own value was that I believed that I brought. And I had to decide what is really my, you know, so like most of us spend a lot of time thinking about what kind of boss we want to work for. Who do we want to take care of? We want to choose who we take care of, who we partner with. Their characteristics are very important. But we very rarely put in the time to look at who, what we are bringing them, like in, in the partnership. So I spent a lot of time getting clean about that for myself. What's my bottom number, right? Um, what have I historically made? How much weight do I want to allow a potential employer to put on my historical pay? Um but then I think it's important too, like as you're talking about how you introduce that, it's like, I don't know why we think we need to argue with that certain positions are just going to pay a certain amount. 
So if you're not happy with that number, it's not your job. Like you don't have to take it, keep looking. You know, if you're desperate and you make a choice out of desperation, that's probably not gonna pan out long for, well for you long run, right? Unfortunately, because you'll come into it needy and wanting and feeling like you're not being validated by them right out of the gate. And that is, you're not gonna show up as the strongest leader and potential partner as you can be for that executive when you come into it um, in that, you know, with that energy, right? You know, I'm always opposed to giving a number, of course, that's like a rule of negotiation. You let the other party give a number first. But if I'm forced to, I'm going to go high and I'm not going to give a specific number and I'm going to tell them why I have to have it. And I'm going to be prepared that if they come back and say, well, you're way out of our range, I'm going to say, okay, good luck. Bye. Yeah. And I know it's hard to leave a role when you have bills to pay and, you know, you can't afford to be out of work for long, but you, know, you mentioned earlier that at the Life Coach School, you guys have a handful of assistants who make over $100,000 a year. And I think that it's because it's a growing industry and they value the partnership and the, the business impact that assistants make. So if you're in an organization or an industry that doesn't value that, it's time to find an industry or an organization and an executive who does see the contribution that you make as an assistant, as an executive business partner. Um, and yeah, get, get your role and pay there. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to get creative. You know, if you're, it's okay. Like if you're not finding it, like I, I had to decide to leave. I had to love leaving my ad agency because I wasn't going to convince those guys it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And I had to give up trying to convince them because I wasn't I wasn't growing there by trying to force a situation. Yeah. So I had to look outside um, where I was. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to go back in time a little bit to your time with the Kansas City Chiefs because I have a special place in my heart for Kansas City and of course the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh Chiefs. Yes. So how did you end up working with the Chiefs? Well that's another story. You sure we have time for that? <laughs> <laughs> give us the give us the uh, quick version. I'll try, I'll try. Okay. So I was working for Sprint Corporate on executive row with Sprint Corporate for about seven years. At the end of the sixth year, I thought I needed to be something more than an executive assistant to be successful in life. So I went for and got a corporate trainer job with Sprint. So like my seventh year of Sprint, I moved to Detroit, Michigan all alone and was a retail trainer for a year. And while there, I met and married my husband, and he lived in Idaho. So I moved to Idaho, 
and quit Sprint because they didn't have a pro, uh, they didn't have a footprint there that I could make any money doing anything. And I started my job search up there, and it was not going to work. It was a teeny tiny town assistants t- still typed on type typewriter. It was like not the kind of assistant role I was going to want there. So I was praying about it. And I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to have to move back to Kansas City to get a real job. I have to use my network. The fastest way for me to pay my bills was going to be to network with people that I knew. So I started reaching back out to Kansas City folks who I had worked with at Sprint. I supported the head of um, sponsorships and brand management from Sprint during my time there. And so he was friends with the guys at the Chiefs. And I, I let him know I'm going to move back to KC. I just want to put a feeler out. And then about a week later, I was moving back to Kansas City because I just knew I had to get back. It's like, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to get a job, I have to be in KC. I have to be ready to interview. I need to meet people. I need to talk to people. On my drive, from Idaho to Kansas City, I got a phone call from Sprint, my connection at Sprint saying, Carl Peterson's looking for a new new assistant. Would you want to interview tomorrow? I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll be there. Uh, so I came in and interviewed. I didn't even have a suit because I'd been like, in a sprint uniform for a year. So it was crazy. But I went in and interviewed out. And then I found out later that out he just gave the interview to me out of courtesy for the relationship with sprint. I was really like a, a late candidate who was thrown in the mix and they already had it narrowed down. Um, and it just... You know, Jeremy, by God's grace, I got that job. It just happened. Like the timing was what the timing was. And yeah. What do you think it was that you did or said in the interview process that pushed you over those candidates that they had already narrowed it down to? Are you ready to elevate your career in 2024? I'm Maggie Olson, founder of Nova Chief of Staff Certification, the first of its kind online course for aspiring and existing chiefs of staff. With curriculum taken directly from on-the-job responsibilities, Nova's self-paced learning modules provides you with hands-on experience so you can feel competent and confident moving into a chief of staff style role. It's the perfect next step for executive assistants. Head to leaderassistant.com Nova to learn more, grab the syllabus, and enroll today. I had nothing to lose, you know, like for me, I didn't, I didn't have a lot. I was, it wasn't like I had my eye on that job and I went after that job and I was really, um, I went into it very much like, this is exciting. Let's see what, let's see whether I like them. Let's see what this is really like. What is this about? What's the office of the chiefs look like? How can I help here? My energy was much more in that vein than scarcity or 
fear or obsession. Like I was very open. Um, and the important part about me being that way was that allowed me to really sh- show who I am, what type of a what type of a genuine interaction I'm going to have with my executive when I show up every day. I, I didn't go in there and try to tell them what I thought they wanted to hear. I went in there and said, here's my resume. I appreciate I've been recommended. I've been recommended. You know, what? tell me what you need in this role. I'll tell you if I think I want to do it. And it was a great conversation. And then um, I left that interview. I felt pretty good about it. I liked the guy who interviewed me. And then I got called back. And here's the thing I did when I got called back that blew them away. So the, the deal was the guy I was going to be supporting, Carl Peterson, this was, it was summertime. Carl was in France. Carl wasn't going to be there in person to interview me. Carl wasn't going to be there in person to onboard me. There wasn't anyone already in the role who could train me. Everything was a mess in that position. So what I did was I came to my second interview with my three-week ramp-up plan for how I was going to onboard myself while Car- before Carl got back in town and before the season would start. And I had it, I mean, I, you know, I had it all on paper and I brought it to the second interview and I said, I'd like to go over this with you to see what I'm missing. And the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then Carl, Carl hated me, by uh. the way. <laughs> Let's just say it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream position by any means in the beginning. That's funny. So how did you work through that? Just. Well, I outlasted him as hell. <laughs> I, I outlasted him. That's funny. Love it. So the two things I noticed is, one, you detached your worth from your work in the sense of if you didn't get this job, you would not have been devastated and you didn't kind of put all your hopes and dreams into this one job. And the second thing is you really going into that second interview, you acted as though you had gotten the job and you're ready to start and you came with a plan and you didn't wait around and, you know, hope that they would tell you what the job was going to take or require, but you came with a plan and you said, Hey, look, this is what I'm going to do. Um, did I miss anything? And so that initiative showed that you weren't going to just sit around and wait for them to tell you what to do. Yeah, I recognized that the guy that I was meeting with, like, he had a problem. You know, he's trying to hire for this guy who's in France. And like, I, I, my, all my thinking is about how to solve a problem, how to solve the current problems. Like, what can I bring that solves problems for people? And then I just go do it. I'm not asking for permission. Like I'm going to bring them the solution. So it was a great way for me to demonstrate that for him. Um, And it worked, you know, it worked. 
Um, and yeah, back to the worth thing. I think that that's like over the course of my career, I wasted so many years trying to let, or, you know, using what my boss thought about my performance, what HR thought about my performance, what my coworkers thought about my work, what my pay meant about my work, my work and my worth. Um, I had them very confused what my value was. And it just, it took time. I was slow to learn about that. And my mind wanted to tell me, like it was, my mind wants to be very confused still at times about what my value is to my boss. I want to assign a dollar per hour number still, but it, that has nothing to do with it. So I'm still learning. It's still, I still do daily work on my own mindset. You know, I use the tools I got certified in on myself for my own leadership mindset, my own value, my own worth. And, you know, for me, my, my work, my job, I have to keep reminding myself, it's only one component of my whole life. You know, I have to keep reprioritizing in my mind because I like to make it number one. I like to make my boss number one. I forget about my creator. I work obsessive hours. I, you know, I don't do self-care. You know, all this stuff, right? So it's an ongoing process for me. And um that's what I love. That's what drew me to so much of what you put out, Jeremy, and the stuff you teach and talk about and create, you know, because you speak to those topics so well. Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you for sharing your story and putting it so well yourself. So a couple quick questions to wrap things up. First off, are you working full-time remotely in your current role? I am. I have a, I would always be. I have always been. The organization was run remotely before the pandemic. Great. So what's your number one tip for working from home? Double monitors and an electric stand-up desk. It's totally a worthwhile investment. 100% agree. I have a manual sit-stand desk, so it's a little more work, but definitely a game changer. All right, my last question is, what makes an assistant a leader? Ownership. Ownership of every possible capacity that your boss is, is touching. Yeah, I could go on and on, but I know you want me to answer that one short. <laughs> yes, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you again. That's very well said. Um, we as assistants must take ownership if we really want to lead our executives well. So nice job. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for sharing your story. I will share the link to the Life Coach 
School podcast, um, and then also your LinkedIn, so people can reach out and say hi to you and connect. Absolutely. And then, yeah, take care. Best of luck to you. And hopefully the next time you're in Kansas City, we can connect. Sounds good. We'll get some barbecue. Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks so much for listening. Check out the show notes at leaderassistant.com slash one, two, one. See you next time. Please review on Apple Podcasts. Go bullos.com.